Turn to the book of Nehemiah this morning. The book of Nehemiah. It's the old, in the Old Testament, those of you who are biblically challenged. said, so not a problem. I've got it on my iPad. All right. I've entitled this message today, Build Something. Build Something. If we look in the book of Genesis, and we see the very first thing that God did. We see God speaking. Now that should, the, the, the principle or the doctrine of first mention is where a lot of theological truths stem from. The first time that you see something spoken or said in Scripture is, is, is spoken of as first mention. It's very important. And the first thing we see God doing is speaking. Now he's God. I mean, anthropomorphically, God could have raised a finger. He could have winked. He could have thunk it. And he could have created But God chose to do it through the power of what? His word. Something right there tells us he is a God that speaks. And by extension, then we should be, as his creation, those that do what? Listen. But beyond that speaking, the first thing we see God doing is making something. He's building. He's creating Now, you and I have too much time watching DIY and HGTV, and so we have the mistaken impression that we can make something. Our wives have told us for years, honey, use the checkbook and the phone. They're the only tools I want you using in my house. But no, 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 no. We think we know I I can fix that. So we go buy some power tool that will do us some bodily harm, or, you know, we go buy some building materials, and we're going to try to make something better, but invariably... We wind up messing it up. But even if we're trying to make something, we're starting with something. Correct? What what, what, what makes God so amazing in this is that he took nothing and he made something. That's that's impressive. I mean, that's like God-sized impressive right there. He spoke and something happened. But you see, there's something in the creative nature of God that I believe flows through you and I. Many times there's an emphasis on the sin nature, the things that we have to overcome. But I believe that there are divine attributes that are found in God's highest creation, you and I, that we need to many times pay more attention to. It's why there is inherent worth in every human being. I hope you understand that. Because many times it's easy to see somebody, it's just like, why are you even on the planet? You don't deserve to be here. And yet because they're made in the image of God, there's something of redemptive value in every human. Do we all understand that? And so there's something of the divine nature of creativity that I believe is inside of every one of us. Our desire to make something, build something, create something. Beyond just that which we see around us. Now maybe it's a product of age or maybe it's the time of the year. But I think many of us look back when we get to the end of a year and we look at the year that has just transpired and we begin to add up the events of that year. To find out if it winds up being a positive or a negative when you kind of add up all the pieces. 
Over the next couple of days, everybody, there'll be all these retrospectives on all the channels of the, the major events of 2012 and who married who and what celebrity had what baby and all of this foolishness. And so we'll look back and we'll kind of highlight, do kind of highlight reel. But we do that for our life as well. And I look back at 2012 and one thing marked my life, I was busy. Hmm. How many of you, that could be your testimony for 2012? I was busy. And I look back and it was, I mean, and it was not real different than a lot of years that have come before this one. I mean, I, I helped lead in this great local church. I preached dozens of sermons. I've traveled to nations. I was in churches in, in this country and other countries. I spoke in conferences. My wife and I helped care for my 82-year-old father. I'm a, I'm a husband. I'm a grandfather. As, and so a lot, of, a lot of things that I do every year, I did again this year. But over the past few days, I realized that I spent the bulk of my time in 2012 managing, not creating. I managed the things that came my way, but really produced and created very little. And so I look and I can say, okay, well, yeah, that's, that's what you're paid to do. Great. Check the box. Many of you go into the workplace every day and you realize they don't want me to be creative. They, they don't want my creativity. They don't want my ideas. They, they don't want my innovation. They want one thing for me. Sit down, shut up, and do your work. And if you do it well, we'll pay you on Friday. And if you don't do it so well, that'll be your last one. But many times we don't find that kind of outlet in many of the things of life. Paying a bill is managing money. Dealing with the lights on your dash when something needs to be attended to with your automobile. That's managing something. And so certainly there's a lot of management that we have to do in the course of this life. But I believe if we are reduced to just being managers, I'm convinced that we are denying a part of the divine nature and wiring that God has placed on the inside of you and I. Something that wants to find expression to build or to create. And as I look back at 2012, I realized I had managed much, but created little. And that fact did not, doesn't really depress me, but it challenges me. And it convicts me moving forward. So this morning, I want to just look at some concepts of building, just for a moment, out of Nehemiah. Scriptures that maybe you've plowed through many times before, but I think are very applicable for where we are in this moment. Very first is consider the walls. Consider the walls. I had a conversation with another friend of mine who's pretty prophetic, and this was months and months ago. And I told him, I said, I have a real sense that our walls have been breached. Our walls have been breached. And this was prior to the horrific events in Connecticut. This had nothing to do with, you know, the political outcomes of November. This was before that. And we see in Nehemiah 1 a description of the walls of a city that were now down and a city in disgrace and a people in disgrace. Verse 3 of Nehemiah 1, those who survived the exile are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. Walls are broken down. The gates have been burned with fire. And Nehemiah writes, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. And days 
For days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Let me ask you a question. As we, and we'll talk about walls here in a second, but when we consider the walls around our culture and around our lives and around our nation, I wonder sometimes if our response is really the same as Nehemiah's. How does it affect us emotionally? And do we really spend that time before the Lord finding that right outlet for what God is stirring in our heart? But this is Nehemiah's prayer. God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. Now notice this prayer is not primarily even for Nehemiah. It is for who? It is, it's, it's moving. It's external. But then we find an amazing statement. I confess the sins we Israelites. He's not trying to set himself apart. He's including himself in this repentance. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly towards you, and we've not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Now, walls we best understand today is fences. If you have a, a yard in northern Virginia and you have a little snookums at home, you probably have a fence around your yard. And so when little snookums has finally gotten on your last nerve, it's time for him to go play outside. You, you know how that works, moms. Don't look at me like that. It can be 15 degrees. You got to go outside and play now. It's cold. Here's a coat on the way out. You have to go. But we have a fence to keep Snookums in and to keep everything away from Snookums that we don't want to get to him or her. Correct? In other words, a wall or a fence keeps the right things in and the wrong things out. But when that wall has been breached, when there's a break in the wall or it doesn't exist, then there becomes an exchange that good things leak out and bad things come in. Now, we know that in, in ancient times, the walls of a city represented more than just a geographical boundary. In other words, this is where Chantilly stops and this is where Fairfax begins. It, it was more than that. Walls of the city represented its protection, its defense. In some cases, its only method of defense. It represented the pride. It represented that city. But inasmuch as there are physical walls that have a representation, there are also moral and spiritual walls that can be built or broken down as well. And the absence of these walls will allow evil to come in unchecked and without hindrance. Been a lot of hand-wringing of why of some events that have happened in our nation over the past few weeks. How could this happen? Why did this happen? Well, let me say it's because walls have systematically been dismantled. Systematically dismantled. And let me offer this not as political commentary, but just fact. Is that where a spiritual or moral wall has been deconstructed, you can build all the legislative walls that you want to, but they will not keep the evil out. 
Because you can't legislate what's in the heart of a man or a woman. That's why the church becomes ever more important in these days as repairers of the breach and builders of the wall. Because we're not talking about just those things that protect a nation from a foreign adversary. We're talking about those things in a man or a woman's heart. They're the walls that have to be reconstructed. But as we talk about this in a corporate sense, let's turn it around and ask some personal questions this morning as we consider walls. What are the conditions of your personal walls right now? Are they being built? Are they tall enough? What are the low places in your wall where it's easy for things to get over or get in? You know, we're at the time of the year that you think that the, that the you know, the, the modern-day plague of the stink bug should be over. Correct? I mean, you think, well, certainly cold weather has wiped these boys out. I mean, they've got to be gone. And then you look up, and there is a rogue survivor that got off the island somehow crawling up your wall. Now, I hate to tell you this, but he ain't the only one. He's the only one that left the congregation for a moment. He's on a scouting trip. And you wonder, and I've talked to the exterminator, so what can we do about this? Well, you could burn your house down. I mean, that would get rid of him for a moment. But he said, you have to close up all the openings. Come on. And so at the behest of your wife, you're out there with duct tape and spray foam and looking for anywhere. But it doesn't take any space at all for one of these bugs to get in, correct? Trust me, the devil's the same way. It doesn't take much of a breach and much of an opening that he's going to find out, can I get in there? I'm going to do everything I can to kind of come in and stink up your life. What are the conditions of your walls? What are the low places? And we all have them, and I hope you know what they are. Because I believe this is a moment that God is saying to us, consider your walls. That pornography issue, that lust issue, that relational breach, whatever it might be, there's stuff crawling over and into your life that you need to run out. And there's some stuff that's gotten in the house that needs to be run back out of the house. And then once they're out, we need to learn to keep them out. Amen? Amen. Consider the walls. Second is clarity. We're talking about building. What has God called me to build? Both of the wall and on the wall. Nehemiah chapter 3, we see some very unlikely guys putting on tool belts and grabbing framing hammers. I mean, jewelry makers, goldsmiths, perfumers. Somehow I don't think a dude winds up going into the perfume shop, strapping on a tool belt, picking up a Makita drill. But somehow, picking up the mandate to repair that part of the wall, he not only acquired the skills, but he developed skills he perhaps that were latent in order to be able to do that which was being required of him. Many times we look around and say, you don't understand, Pastor. I don't have any skills that relate to spiritual building. I'm sorry, you're wrong, you do. The New Testament refers to them as spiritual gifts. The Bible is very clear. Each one of you has at least one for the corporate building and building up of the house. 
And so you may not think, well, you know, I can't preach like Pastor Brad or pray like Pastor Danelle. I can't sing like Tiffany. I can't do this, that, and the other. I don't have those gifts. Well, you've got something. Either you got something or the Bible's wrong. And if the Bible's wrong about that point, what else is it wrong about? Uh-oh. Obviously nothing. Which means you have at least one spiritual gift. You've got something to bring to the wall. You've got something to bring to this building. And there are three stages always in building. First of all, you've got to get started. I know that sounds pretty obvious, but you've got to get started. You've got to commence. Nehemiah 2.18, so they began this good work. And some of you have overthought this thing for so long, you haven't started anything. You're frustrated idealists and frustrated perfectionists and you're waiting for these ideal moments and everything to line up. And guess what? You're not building because you haven't started. Some of us need to start something. Others of us need to just continue construction. We continue the work, it says in verse 21 of chapter 4. From the first light of dawn till the stars came out. And then we need to finish. We need to complete something. There's a lot of us that have got a lot of undone stuff around our life. Whether it's a sewing project or a writing project or maybe something around the house. Maybe we started out in, you know, a small group at our workplace, Bible studies with some folks, and we, it just, they just kind of, kind of fizzled out. I believe we need to finish some things. Christ's example was to finish. He wrote in John 4, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and do what? Finish. Finish his work. Nehemiah 6.15. It says they finished the wall in 52 days. And when our enemies heard about this. Now watch this as a principle. Many times we think about the weapons of our warfare being found in Ephesians. Breastplate, sword, all that kind of stuff. But this is a weapon of warfare. When our enemies heard the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized this work had been done with the help of our God. Do you realize that the enemy is not afraid of folk that don't ever start anything? He's pretty much got them locked up in their idealism or their fear. Then there are the other folks that never finish anything. He's not too worried about them either. I just get them distracted. But it's the finishers that really worry the devil. When the devil sees a group of people that said, we're going to plant churches, we're going to open campuses, we're going to finish this building over here, we're going to finish what we start. Let me just tell you, it puts the devil on notice. That's a group of folk down there. They follow through with what they say. They're not just intoxicated on vision and words. They actually, they actually put their feet on the ground. They put their boots on the ground. They get it done down there. And see, there's something that happens in the heavenlies. Not just in the natural as people look on and they applaud the completed building, whether it's in your life or the life of a church or a physical property. But something gets communicated in the heavenlies. These people finish what they start. Uh-oh. 
Number three, clutter. It's actually the rubble and the condemnation of the past. You always have distractors and detractors when a building project begins. And we got a bunch of fools here, and they're just always, they're always up, up with the builders. And they, they're saying, can they bring these stones back to life from the heaps of rubble burned as they are? Now, understand, this original wall, the gates, it was burned. And so what we have is burned limestone, which is a, it's very, it's very jagged. It's very difficult to move without getting cut. And it's certainly not a good foundation to build upon. And so they've got all of this rubble that represents this old wall. It represents the past. And it says in verse 10, it says, The strength of the laborers is giving out because there's so much rubble we can't rebuild the wall. You see, the rubble represents the past. Some of us are not building because we have never removed the rubble of our past. And we're trying to build on this spot and we wonder, what's wrong with this foundation? Your past is not a foundation that can be built upon. You can only build on the foundation who is Jesus Christ. And it's amazing how we use these things, these stones. And, 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 and guys, let me tell you, if you've ever had an encounter with another human being, you've been burned. I'm sorry. If you're sitting next to a spouse, you've been burned. As a matter of fact, you well done. Cooked, toast, dry. I mean, because it's just what, it's what happens. And we wind up getting burned. Life, relationships, we all, we're all burned. Let me just tell you, get over it. Because Jesus' intention is to turn burn stones into living stones and burn stones into building stones. This is what Christ does. So we can't say, look at my past. I can't build anything on this. And yet, God's already dealt with your past. If you'll allow it to be dealt with. Hmm. Number four is conflict. It's an amazing thing that as you build... The conflict around that building will increase proportionately, if not exponentially. It would be wonderful if we, would, we, we, we finally get on to commencing construction in our life and the devil says, oh, okay, that's it, I'm done, I'm gone, goodbye. No, 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 no. That's an invitation for conflict to begin to escalate. Nehemiah 401, it says that when Sambalot and Tobias and all these guys, it says they saw that they were commencing the work, it says they were angry. But as you move down to verse 6, it says they continued work until the wall was half height. Then all of a sudden it says they were very angry. And that's when they begin to plot. That's when they begin to scheme and devise ways that we can stop this from happening. Your Bible and mine says that no weapon formed against us will prosper. But there is a weapon of frustration that is formed against your life that as you begin to get on with the building and that thing that God has called you to participate in and with, that the devil is going to come and try to mess with you, try to discourage you, lie to you. And it would be one thing if it was just the conflict that came from the enemy. But it says... 
A little bit later that even the Jews that lived in that area, they were up in their faces saying, you don't understand. It says, whenever you, whenever you turn, they're going to come get you. Have you ever been around somebody that it's like you, you, you could say, you know, I've got this so-and-so and this. Yeah, you know, my mama died of that. Thank you. I'm edified. My faith is soaring now. Shundai. We need to get some people around our life who will at least lie to us. I'm serious. But whose report are you going to believe? And honestly, if somebody uses the word physical cliff with me one more time, I'm going to slap somebody. I'm, going, just, I'm warning you in advance, I'm going to go off on you, all right? I, anybody, come on. And everybody's like, <gasps> everybody's terrified right now. And God's up there like, the silver and gold is still mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. You boys are playing with Monopoly money. And yet, <gasps> we need to get the right folk around our life telling us the right things. It's why scripture says very clearly, it says, don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another. What does it say? Daily. Daily. That means a lot. And then he says, the work is extensive and spread out. Most of us drove further than 15 minutes to get to church this morning. Some of you are from Maryland, some from Virginia. I'm from Canada. I mean, we, all, we come from all different places, you know. I got sled dog parking right out here in the parking lot they did for me. And yet, we're ex it's extensive and spread out. And yet, Nehemiah says, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there and our God will fight for us. Now, that's, that's, a, that's a big passage. First of all, the trumpet in Scripture is often a metaphor for the prophetic. So consider the trumpet have blown in your life, first of all. But it says, join us there. I am amazed at how much war Christians still try to do by themselves. God never intended for us to war this thing alone, inasmuch as he never called us to build this thing alone. And yet we get out here and we get beat up and we're sick. And our marriage needs prayer and our kids need prayer. And nobody. Join us there. And what does it say? Our God will fight for us. I don't know about you. I'm tired of fighting. And if the key to releasing God's warfare in my life is to listen to the trumpet. And when I hear it, go get with another group of folk. I'm all over that. And you need to be too. And if this meeting on Sunday is your only contact and you call yourself the church, I love you, but you are deceived. That's a strong word. But this is not church. This is a meeting. This is a marvelous thing. But it's not the church. Church is dynamic. It's living. It's relational. And if, 
and, and, and let me just tell you, it's got to move beyond this. If you're not in a small group, if you're not here on Wednesdays, if you're not somehow vitally connected and interrelated beyond Sunday morning for 60 minutes, you will run out of gas during the week. God never intended for this to be the sole filling station. And if that's a rebuke, then receive it pastorally and lovingly. Because I love you. Jesus loves you. Just don't want to see you get whooped. Cooperation. I can only mention these last two. God's not called us again to war alone. He's not called us to build alone. Ephesians 2. Built together to become a holy temple. And finally, consecration. David, in giving instructions concerning the building of the temple that his son Solomon was about to embark upon, makes a statement in 1 Chronicles 29.5, where he asks this question, Who is willing to consecrate himself today to the Lord? Before there can be anything of significance ever built, there first must be a setting apart to that purpose. You know, as Christians in the West, we have been told something that's not true in that we can have it all. Now, I'm not your mama, but maybe she told you that growing up. Be all you can be. If you work hard enough, go to school, you know, hang around with the right folks. I mean, you can have it all, honey. Well, your mama was wrong. I'm here to tell you. Pastor Jim talking about my mama. (laughs) Your mama was wrong. Because what your mama told you is not biblical. You see, kingdom is all about exchange. We give over something of no or nominal value for something of greater value. We give over our sin for his righteousness. Death for life. Our strength for his strength. You get in the picture here. Our, our, our stuff. For I mean, it's always about exchange. And this is what consecration is about. It's where we give, up, we give up and we give over one thing in order to do what? Acquire something of greater value. It's the pearl of great price. Those things of the greatest value in a retail store put where? Up high. And yet Scripture records for us that we are seated with Him in the heavenly realms in Ephesians 2. God has already consecrated you and I. But we don't live like consecrated men and women many times. And we hear that word and we immediately think, well, what do you want me not to do, Pastor? What do you want me to give up for the fast this time? Huh? It's not about giving up. It's about setting apart. Setting apart. 1 Peter 3.15, and I'll close with this. In your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. How much of your heart and the house which is your heart has been set apart for Christ as Lord? Consecration is nothing more than lordship. And as Pastor Danielle said, we're not this week, but the following week, we're going to have a few days of prayer and fasting. And these points that you heard this morning, they're going to be our prayer and fasting points. And consecration is going to be part of that. God, what are those things that you're wanting me to set aside 
so that I can set apart my life for your building. You need to build something. Build something. Let's pray. Lord, let us hear well today. But beyond just hearing well, let's be obedient to the word. Lord, let us, we all consider the walls in our own life where they've been breached. And God, I pray we would run out everything that shouldn't be there. God, and we would construct the walls in such a way that the wrong things stay out so the right things can stay in. Lord, let us be a people that finish. Finish.